KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. Plastic recycling is called a myth. An investigation begins. Having a government official come out and say, no more, and we're going to look into this, is a really big deal. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Migrant casualties increase with the height of the border wall. So the impact is real, and it is something we are seeing, and therefore something that we really want uh, public health officials, government officials to know that this impact is real. The reasons why San Diego is losing population and themes of bad luck and hope are explored in the children's book, Freddy versus the Family Curse. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Recycling plastics, bottles, bags, containers, and more has become standard in many American households to help remove plastic pollution from the environment. But now, the central idea that most plastic can be recycled is being called a deception. California Attorney General Rob Bonta has launched an investigation into the oil and gas industry's campaign to promote plastic recycling, claiming it was an effort to sell more plastic. Bonta says the truth over many decades is that the majority of plastics cannot be recycled and the industry knows it. Joining me is LA Times reporter Suzanne Rust. And Suzanne, welcome. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate this. It's an exciting topic. Well, Bonta is beginning his investigation by issuing subpoenas to ExxonMobil. We don't usually think, though, of plastics as being part of the fossil fuel industry. How closely tied are they to that industry? Oh, extremely closely. So it is oil and gas that is sort of the feedstock, the foundation of plastic material. There are some plastics that are made from sort of vegetable matter or other kinds of things, but the vast majority, probably over 90% of all of the plastics we deal with on a day-to-day basis are built from oil and gas. Now, the Attorney General is calling the idea of plastic recycling a myth. Why? Well, if you look at the numbers, the United Nations looked into this, only 9% of plastics are actually recycled. And that's abysmally small when you think of how many plastics are 
generated um, and put into the plastic stream and waste stream every day. Two years ago, NPR did an investigation that looked at this recycling myth and discovered that the plastics industry has known since the 70s and 80s that recycling was never actually going to be a part of the uh, the end game for plastics. That it just it was it was not a feasible a feasible way to get rid of plastics. Yet they put these arrows on you know all of these plastic items we have these numbers with the idea that we could recycle it. It was sort of a sell to the consumers. And quite frankly, for many years, even though we could not recycle these plastics here, we did ship them off to China and to other countries um, to do the recycling, the incinerating, the burying in landfill overseas. And in 2017, China said they weren't going to do it anymore. So What's, what's really happened is we're now having all of this plastic sort of stay within the confines of our of our country here. And it's just building up. Waste managers can't do anything with it anymore because it's can't recycle it for the most part. And apparently more plastic is actually being found inside us. Is that right? You know, as, as science is sort of catching up to this overload of plastics that we have in our environment, they are discovering that everywhere they look, they are finding plastics, including inside us. So there have been recent studies that have found it in human blood. They have found it in healthy lung tissue in humans. They have found it even in newborn meconium, which is that first fecal matter that a baby passes after after being born. It's everywhere. It's in all of us. It's in placentas. So yes, and it's unclear what that all means, but we all have plastic in us. Okay, is California the first state to launch an investigation like this? Yes. So um, this was really quite an extraordinary move um, by the part of the California Attorney General. Uh, no other state has has done this. No other nation has done this. So this is really singular. Um, and I think the Attorney General's office is, is hoping that this will be the beginning of, of more investigations and potentially lawsuits like this. Now, since the claim is that the recycling deception has been going on for decades, why is this investigation being launched now? For two reasons. Um, the first was this investigation, again, that was done by uh, PBS a couple years ago that sort of brought forward these documents um, and these conversations that had taken place within the plastics industry. So, you know, here, here we have evidence of deception. And the second part of it is, I think anybody can attest to the fact that we are overwhelmed with plastic waste now. I mean, it's hard not to drive down the road and see plastic on the side of the highway. It's hard not to go out in a kayak in the ocean and see plastic float by. It's literally everywhere. And it is becoming not just overwhelming, it's exceeding overwhelming at this point. How have Exxon and the petrochemical industry reacted to this news? In two ways, the industry as a whole is saying that this is an unnecessary move, that they are being proactive, that they recognize plastic waste is an issue, um, and they are taking voluntary measures to address it. And Exxon itself is saying that this is um, an unwarranted attack and has no basis, in fact. And what about environmental advocates? Are they supporting the attorney general's action? Environmental activists are are in complete support of this action. Environmentalists for years have been sort of ringing the warning bell about the amount of plastic that was getting into the environment. And this action is a strong one. It's um, having a government official come out and say, no more, and we're going to look into this is a really big deal. And I think most environmental organizations are behind this. And one of the just an interesting and aside here, as I talk to people sort of about what this means, is it like the climate legislation that's been brought against oil companies? I heard people say it's more akin to the tobacco industry uh, lawsuits, um, that 
there is real harm here to, to potentially humans, wildlife, and the environment. Um, it's a really sort of intimate health threat. And so what we'll see is something, again, that will be more like the lawsuits that the government brought against the tobacco industry and the lead industry and the asbestos industries. Now, Bonta says the subpoena issued to Exxon, he says it's just the beginning. What's coming next? The investigation will unfold as the attorney general learns more about what actually has transpired, what the Exxon, for instance, knew about recycling and the deception uh, they waged upon the consumers, uh, the public. Uh, Once more information like that is gathered, then presumably there will be a lawsuit and it may broaden to include other fossil fuels uh, and petrochemical companies as well. All right, then. I've been speaking with L.A. Times reporter Suzanne Rust. Suzanne, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Doctors around the region are seeing the grim effects of the border wall's height increase to 30 feet. Since 2019, there has been a five-time increase in the number of people severely injured at the wall. That's according to data from UC San Diego Health and Scripps Mercy Hospital, first reported by the San Diego Union-Tribune. Doctors are calling it a local public health crisis as people fill trauma centers. Joining me to talk about what he's seeing is Dr. Vishal Bansal, Director of Trauma Surgery at Scripps Mercy Hospital. Dr. Bansal, welcome. Thank you. So what can you tell us about the injuries you've seen from people who have fallen off the border wall? Sure. So there's there's two components to that question. The first component is the injuries that we see falling from a border height are mostly orthopedic in nature. So long bone fractures of the leg, of the lower leg, of the arms, also of the spine. We're also seeing traumatic brain injury. We're seeing um, thoracic and abdominal injury. Uh, So we're seeing these and, and that, even though there may be some increase in severity, that's not much different than what we've seen in the past. The real difference is just the pure number of patients. The volume of patients has increased to levels that I've never seen it, and I've been taking care of trauma patients in this county since 2005. So it's been, it's been an enormous increase in volume, which to me has been um, uh, a real shocking situation. Hmm. And how serious have these injuries been for the people who sustain them? The majority of those patients are treated, uh, treated with operations, and are discharged um, out of the hospital or dispositioned out of the hospital without issue. The, um, there are some patients that are in the ICU for a prolonged period of time, and there are some patients that unfortunately have died. So it's been a combination of um, uh, mostly discharges, uh, some of them needing prolonged hospitalization and length of care, and some patients actually dying. You know, parts of the border wall were increased to 30 feet in 2019, as we mentioned, uh, from heights of 8 feet in parts and 17 feet in others. How do the number of people getting injured now and the seriousness of these injuries compare to what you'd seen before the border wall height increased in 2019? So I want to be clear, even though there seems to be some degree of a temporal relationship, uh, it, it also corresponds with an increasing number of migrants that are um, that are uh, entering the country through, um, uh, I, I use the word illegal, but, but what I'm trying to use is a word that is through um, uh, areas that are not ports of entry. 
So it's hard to know how much of the increase in injuries are secondary to an increase in border wall height versus just the number of pure migrants that are actually crossing. Uh, and we don't know the answer to that. Uh, I, I'm aware of the, the data that was published by UCSD, but we don't exactly know where these patients have been injured. They could be injured in areas that aren't exactly that high. They could be areas and injured that might be lower. So it's hard to control for that. So we can't definitively say that the number of injuries is secondary to an increase in border wall height. There's probably some degree of truth to that, but I think that probably the majority of the number of the increase is directly related to the number of migrants that are trafficking across the border, uh, more so than the height itself. And what have you learned about the people who have sustained these injuries? What led them to take such a risk to climb a 30-foot wall risking such injury? Well, again, it's not always a 30-foot wall height. Sometimes they, they might be actually um, in areas that aren't, in fact, 30 feet. So there is a great deal of differences between the patients. Um, the majority of patients don't really tell us a whole lot about why they tried to enter the country. Uh, we don't get into that level of granularity oftentimes because of the, the, uh, the injuries themselves kind of mandate um, more, uh, more careful management. But those that have uh, discussed this with us, Many patients have uh, simply mentioned they're, they're entering the country for work purposes. Um, many of these patients have actually been in the country before. Um, uh, oftentimes we find that many of these patients actually have family and or friends or contacts in the country, um, which, which we find is always um, uh, helpful for disposition purposes. And interesting enough, it's not just patients from Mexico. There are patients from Central America. We've seen patients from the Caribbean, including Jamaica, Cuba, we've seen patients from Europe, including um, Eastern Europe, Turkey, uh, we've seen patients from Punjab, we've seen patients from East Africa. So it is a variety of, um, of patients from, from various areas of the world. The majority are still Mexican, the vast majority are still Latin American, but it is certainly uh, not exclusive. How are these patients impacting the hospital and medical staff? This is the reason we are um, so interested in, in, in this specific subject at this specific time. We all know that the COVID scenario has impacted hospital care uh, in terms of the number of nurses we have, the number of physicians we have, uh, OR availability, ICU availability. So we've already been faced with that, that degree of reckoning. This adds to that. So these patients have um, almost quadrupled the number of injuries that we've seen in the past. The majority of these patients require significant operative intervention with many, many days in the hospital and also many trips to the operating room. So it adds a real burden to our overall health care. Uh, we've already had nursing shortages. We have operating room shortages. This adds to that. Um, we find ourselves doing these really significant surge um, situations. We find ourselves canceling elective cases so we can just manage the sheer volume of these patients. So it does impact overall health care in our hospital system, and it does overall impact health care in the trauma system as well. What's it been like for you personally to care for these patients? Well, I've been doing this for a long time. So for me, uh, the, the situation has um, been pretty consistent. You know, we take care of anyone in this hospital. It doesn't matter who you are from what walk of life. We will always take care of these patients with the greatest degree of of medical excellence. In that respect, nothing has changed. What has changed, however, is the sheer volume of patients. So if I'm operating in the middle of the night 
and all of a sudden we have five or six border injuries that that uh, are transferred to us at once, that certainly does add to the overall stress and the overall workload um, of our uh, of our daily uh, and nightly work life. So the impact is real, and it is something we are seeing, and therefore something that we really want uh, public health officials, government officials to know that this impact is real. What do you see as the solution to this problem? I don't know. I don't know. The one thing I would ask uh, our public officials, and if I had any ask whatsoever, it's to increase the level of funding so we can actually trans, excuse me, that we can actually operate on these patients in a timely manner and be able to do so uh, without impacting our other healthcare costs and our other healthcare availability. So extension of um, hospital operating and personnel, extension of anesthesia services, extension of operating services, so we can manage these patients in a timely fashion. I've been speaking with Dr. Vishal Bansal, Director of Trauma Surgery at Scripps Mercy Hospital. Dr. Bansal, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for the time. I appreciate it. Hi, I'm Beth Accomando, KPBS arts reporter and host of the Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm also a geeky gourmet who likes to bake food themed to the movies I watch, like chocolate blood to savor with Dracula, or an extra chewy Wookiee cookie to enjoy with Star Wars. I'm geeky about the things I love, and that makes me a public radio geek as well. I love being able to connect with audiences just like you through TV, radio, the web, and podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. So, are you a KPBS geek? If so, then I'm asking you to get in touch with your inner nerd and become a member of KPBS today. Just go to kpbs.org and click the blue Give Now button and make a donation. That's right. Let's geek out together about the things we love. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Jade Heineman. Hate incidents are on the rise in San Diego, yet they continue to be difficult to prosecute. But KPBS race and equity reporter Christina Kim finds 911 dispatchers can help make a hate crime case. And a warning, this story uses 911 tape discussing violence and hatred. San Diego Police Emergency, this is Belia. Hi there. Um, there are some guys beating up on gay guys in the Balboa Park. That's a 911 call placed in 2006 from just outside Balboa Park on the second night of San Diego's Pride Festival. And the people are screaming for help. Do they have any weapons? It sounds like they have baseball bats or something because I can hear them hitting them with something. When three people brutally attack six men, leaving one with severe head injuries while yelling homophobic slurs. And they're saying, like, anti-gay stuff. The attackers, including a minor, were ultimately charged with hate crimes. The recorded 911 call served as key evidence for prosecutors who needed to show hate motivated the attacks. Which is why, more than 15 years later, Deputy District Attorney Abigail Dillon is playing these tapes for over a dozen of San Diego County's 911 dispatchers at a training all about hate crimes. Some of you might be thinking, like, what does this have to do with me? Why am I listening to this boring lady talk about this very niche area of the law, right? Who cares? 
Um, we're dispatchers. We have a different role to play. But Dylan says the role dispatchers play is very important in collecting evidence for hate crimes. The details that a dispatcher is able to get from someone who is on scene witnessing it as it happened or the victim of the crime itself um, or even the suspect, um, I can't emphasize enough how important that information gathering can be and how critical that evidence can be, especially in hate crime cases. In San Diego's city alone, hate crimes increased by 77 percent in 2021 from the previous year, according to the police department. But even though the district attorney's office received around 300 reports of hate crimes, they only prosecuted 30 cases. Dylan says hate crimes are very difficult to prosecute. It requires us to prove that the perpetrator's act was motivated in whole or in part because of a bias. And that's why Dylan trains 911 dispatchers, because the questions they ask can be pivotal in proving bias. We want dispatchers to be aware of kind of the difficulties of what we have to prove for purposes of hate crimes, um, what's required, um, so that that's in the back of their mind as they're asking for additional details from witnesses or victims or suspects who call 911. She plays 911 calls to show the kinds of questions they can ask, like in the attack at Pride, when the caller said the attackers were saying anti-gay slurs. Dispatchers can also ask whether anyone was displaying any known hate symbols or even get details from suspects. You said that you what? I just shot up a synagogue. I'm defending my country. I'm in my car. You can come get me. I will not shoot you. That's what the dispatcher did when talking to the man who shot four people at a Poway synagogue in 2019. He got his motive. Why'd you do it? Because the Jewish people are destroying the white race. They have been for a long time, and no one's doing anything about it. Something has to be done. Christina Newton is a first-year 911 dispatcher for the San Diego Sheriff's Department. After going through the training, she says she's thinking about her job differently. I'll be asking a lot more follow-up questions, a lot more clarifying questions, um, just trying to determine if there are other types of crimes within some of our more standard calls. She says it was good to hear she can help hate crime prosecution. It's this kind of crime that you think people don't get charged for. Or, you know, victims don't get justice in a way. So it was nice to hear that there are ways to do that. Dylan says prosecuting more hate crimes is an integral part of how the region must address growing hate. I think that by prosecuting hate crimes, we in turn are sending a message that this is not acceptable. So she's making sure dispatchers are ready every time they answer a call. Christina Kim, KPBS News. With the moniker of America's finest city and a climate that's really hard to beat, it may come as a surprise to hear that people are leaving San Diego. For the first time in over a decade, San Diego has lost population. Though the decline is not as significant as other urban areas in the state, the demographic shift could have major impacts on San Diego's future. Here to tell us more is Mike Freeman, technology reporter with the San Diego Union-Tribune. Mike, welcome. Thanks for having me. So how much population did San Diego actually lose? Well, San Diego County lost 11,183 people, which is a very small percentage of the roughly 3.3 million people who live here. That's that's well under 1%, 0.3% of that. But it was a decline. And again, like you mentioned, that's the first time that that's happened. 
in at least the last decade uh, based on California Department of Finance data. Now, in your article, you share a startup founder story, one that led him away from San Diego's shores. Tell us about him. Yeah, I mean, that was an interesting case in that, you know, it was not about necessarily affordability. It was about competitiveness and a lack of supply for them. So, you know, Cody Barbo, he is a serial entrepreneur. He's currently CEO of Trust and Will, uh, which automates estate planning. And, uh, you know, it's a venture-backed startup. So, you know, it's doing pretty well. You know, he's in his early 30s. They've had a child. He was looking to you know, take part in the American dream, buy a house rather than renting. And, um, you know, just found he could not find a house that wasn't getting multiple offers and above listing price and all cash offers. And he just didn't feel like he could compete. So, you know, he and his wife started looking elsewhere and they had a bunch of cities on their list and settled on Dallas and, you know, got a home that he said, you know, you just get a lot more for your money there. Right. And so the availability of housing, thats that was one reason why people are leaving San Diego. What are some other reasons people are moving away? There's really no data on that, right? I mean, why they're moving away. But you can see a little bit of the demographic breakdown, right? People have been actually, San Diego County's had a net domestic outmigration for a number of years, and so has California. You know, so that means that more people leave the state than move in. The um, Public Poly Institute of California estimates that, you know, that's about over the last decade, seven and a half million people have moved, but only 5.8 million people have moved in. So what has happened, though, in the past in San Diego County in particular, is that foreign immigration has made up for that. And there always is a kind of a there's more births than deaths. And what happened last year was there was really a slowdown in foreign immigration. Probably most of that is pandemic related. You, you just couldn't get into the country, right? I mean, there was a lot of shutdowns. You got to understand that this time period was July 2020 to July 2021. So a lot of restrictions on people coming in. And then, you know, there were births have been declining steadily and there was a little uptick in deaths during that time period. And so, the, you know, that narrowed and it ended up netting out to be a loss in population. Hmm. For those who are actually leaving San Diego, where are they going? Uh, again, that's going to be anecdotal, but the metro areas that have grown the most over this time period, as opposed to like some of the big metro areas in California that lost population, you know, were the Dallas area in Texas, the greater Houston in Texas, the kind of Austin, Round Rock area in Texas, you know, Phoenix Mesa. And then interestingly, Riverside San Bernardino here in California, which people seem to move from dense coastal expensive counties into perhaps less expensive or inland empire counties. Hmm. So why is population decline such a concern? I think it has economic implications. And so you, know, you need to ask yourself if for every, let's say for every person, I, I heard this just for every person that moves into the county for a job, that creates a, a multiplier effect. And it, I'm, I'm thinking it was um, like 2.1 other kind of jobs um, that would be in the services and things like that. If you, if you continue to have, you know, population leave, I think you need to ask yourself, how are you going to fill those jobs, particularly in the current labor market, where it's very, very, very tight and employers are already struggling to find workers. You know, now San Diego's population loss was not as extreme as other parts of the state. What areas in California saw the biggest population declines? 
according to the census, you know, this was, um, you know, greater Los Angeles, which is, you know, about 10 million people and lost about 160,000. So it's about 1.6%. Uh, San Francisco had a, a big exodus, about 55,000 people out of there. And that's, you know, a very small county, but it's was 6.3% of their population. And then Silicon Valley lost, you know, 2.3% or 45,000 people. You know, what do these have in common? You know, they're dense urban areas, they're, they're big and they're expensive. And this population loss occurred right in the heart of the coronavirus pandemic, as you mentioned. How has the pandemic shaped population shifts over the course of the last two years? To me, personally, I think what's interesting more than anything else is, is the remote work and the ability to work remotely and whether that sticks, right, as part of the pandemic. Experts I've spoken to and, and quoted in this story think this is a blip. Right, that it's it, it was driven largely by the pandemic, but not something that will carry on. They don't expect a big swing in, you know, more people moving back to California, but they do expect that the exodus will ease and there will continue to be more, you know, natural increases and more foreign immigration to make up for anybody who moves. I've been speaking with Mike Freeman, technology reporter with the San Diego Union Tribune about his latest article on population loss in San Diego. Mike, thanks so much for joining us. Again, thanks for having me. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. San Diego author Tracy Badua's debut middle grade novel, Freddy vs. the Family Curse, comes out Tuesday. It follows Freddy Ruiz, a cursed seventh grader who's resigned to a life of bad luck until a rediscovered family heirloom gives him a little hope. KPBS arts editor and producer Julia Dixon-Evans spoke with Tracy Badua about the book, and here's that conversation. Hi, Tracy. Welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. Tracy, this book follows 12-year-old Freddie, who has struggled his entire life with the uncanny ability to faceplant in front of classmates. If something could go wrong for Freddie, it usually would. Can we start by having you read from the very beginning? This is when we first meet Freddie and his luck. Yeah, of course. So starting from the very beginning in chapter one, there's nothing more heart-stopping than the wheeze of an empty glue bottle the night before a big school project is due. Come on, come on, come on. I shake the bottle and squeeze again. Not one glob of grade-saving adhesive. Not even a drop. I chuck the bottle toward my trash can. It sails clear over the heap of school uniforms on my bed, past an ankle-high stack of old notebooks and worksheets. I miss. I thump my forehead down on the desk and sigh. My eyebrow lands in a wet smudge of green paint. The curse. Got to be the curse. Like straight black hair and those little chicken skin bumps on my upper arms, bad luck is in my genes. Thank you. So the Ruizas are a Filipino-American family living in a multi-generational household. What made you want to write about these characters? 
Well, you know, kind of the easy answer is it was writing what I was used to writing what I know. I grew up in a household where I had my grandmothers stay with us for long periods of time. So it was nice to be able to kind of draw that into the story to show that, you know, it was my parents and it was me and my brother. And then, you know, my grandmother kind of hanging out with us and, and, and watching us and keeping us out of trouble. So that's something that I wanted to reflect in this book. Because I knew not a lot of folks, at least when, you know, where I grew up, had this kind of multi-general aspect in their household. It was always like, I'm going to go visit grandmother as opposed to, oh, our grandmother lives with us. So luck is the centerpiece of the story. And with it, superstition and Filipino folklore. This anting-anting is something that Freddie finds. Can you tell us what he then learns about the Ruiz family curse and about his great-granduncle Ramon? Yeah, so this is, of course, not a spoiler because it says, you know, right on the back of the book that the amulet does have the ghost of his great-granduncle in it. He finds an unting-unting. So in the book, it's in the form of a gold coin that's on a leather string. So it's a little bit like a necklace. Um, But it really, you know, in kind of general Filipino practice, it could be almost anything. But in the story, he finds it and is like, yes, finally, I've got a good luck charm. I can get rid of this family curse. And his great grand uncle pops out and is like, oh, sorry, that's not how this one works. It's actually going to make everything worse. So now you've got 13 days to, you know, banish this family curse forever or you're going to get stuck in here with me. So that's kind of the rundown of what he has to deal with when he gets this unting unting and it just ends up upending his life and putting a time limit on it. One of the things that he has to go and do next is find one of Ramon's old friends. And there is a bit of a history lesson in this book. Can you talk about the inclusion of Ramon's World War II backdrop and his participation in the Philippine Scouts and the Bataan Death March? So the Bataan Death March was um, like a 65-mile march by Filipino and American soldiers in World War II from Bataan to trains that would take them to prison camps. And this was actually inspired by um, the fact that my grandfathers did serve in the military back in World War II, and one of them actually was a survivor of the Bataan Death March. And it, it was one of those things that I didn't really maybe know of or realize the impact of until much later in life. So I wanted to make sure I included it, especially in a book for children. So, you know, if they wanted to look it up or maybe they won't get to, you know, later ages like I did and realize that this is the first time they've ever heard of such a such a big event in our history. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about food. It's not an overt theme in the book, but it's still there as this way of really putting us in the room with this family. Was it important to you to portray traditional Filipino-American food and other subtle details of their life as this thing of normalcy? Absolutely. One of the things that he eats early on in the book is garlic fried rice for breakfast. And I do remember a conversation in my childhood where um, a friend of mine was like, you guys eat rice for breakfast? I was like, I eat rice all the time. So little things like that, where I just wanted to kind of incorporate it in. So again, it's not the first time anyone sees it like out in the real world. There's, you know, folks who live in multi-generational households. There's folks that eat all sorts of cool stuff, all times of day. 
um, and then bring it for lunch and, you know, open up their Tupperware and garlic fried rice smell goes everywhere, but it's delicious. And, you know, there's little, little hints here and there in the book of the fact that he uses, you know, banana ketchup, which is something that you can find in a lot of Filipino and Filipino American households. And, um, you know, it's exciting to kind of throw those in. He's Filipino American. So there's plenty of mentions of like pizza and burritos and other things, but being Filipino American means that the Filipino cuisine is definitely just part of what you do. So you set this book in San Diego and you're a local here. I'm wondering what this journey has been like for you writing your first book in and about San Diego. It was fantastic setting it in San Diego. And one of the things that I think is a little bit fun is that the book actually starts out in the middle of a storm. So, you know, fellow San Diegans would probably know that maybe that's not as uncommon here. We'd maybe like it to be so we could get a little bit more rain. But the fact that it starts out with rain in San Diego kind of sets up that feeling of, oh, there's something a little bit off here. Tracy, thank you so much. Thank you again for having me. This was a pleasure. That was KPBS arts editor and producer Julia Dixon Evans speaking with Tracy Badua, author of the new middle grade novel, Freddy versus the Family Curse. The book comes out tomorrow, and Tracy will celebrate with a book signing at Mysterious Galaxy at 6 o'clock Tuesday night. Recently, KQED reporter Atidi Bandamudi ate a dish that so delighted and confused her. She found herself on a journey to trace its wild origin story. It's a story that led her across the world and then back here to California. Here's that story from the California Report. One night a few months ago, my husband, Sheshav Gandhi, announced that we were going to the South Bay to eat Indian sizzlers for dinner. I figured he had misspoken. Maybe he meant to say samosas or Szechuan food. But no, he meant to say sizzlers. Now, I should probably point out that my husband and I are both Indian, but Sheshav was born and brought up in Mumbai. He moved to the United States about six years ago. I, on the other hand, was born and raised in the U.S., but I grew up eating Indian food. My mom would make dishes from Andhra Pradesh, Tamil Nadu, Gujarat, and Punjab. Growing up here, I knew there would be gaps in my cultural understanding of India, but I never thought food would be a place I would come up short. So we get to the South Bay, Milpitas to be exact, and we enter Milan Sweet Center. It's the small restaurant tucked away in a strip mall of Indian clothing stores and threading salons. And while Milan Sweets is known for their sweets, Janan Gandhi, Sheshav's best friend, said we had to try their sizzlers. I would describe a sizzler as a hot, steamy plate, on top of which you can find uh, all kinds of veggies, rice, even pasta. Okay, I should stop right here and explain exactly what a sizzler is. At its base, there's a bed of grains, whether that's noodles, rice, or pasta. On top of that are grilled vegetables, usually an assortment of onions, bell peppers, sometimes zucchini, and cubes of paneer, all mixed together in a tangy sauce. On top of that, fresh, thinly sliced cabbage and carrots, kind of like coleslaw mix. Finally, some shredded cheese. And it all comes out on the steaming hot platter. The whole thing smokes up the room and crackles as it comes towards the table. I was overwhelmed as it approached me. 
The sizzler I got had pasta mixed in a kind of red vodka cream sauce with giant samosas on top of it. It was confusing because I know all of these elements separately, but together, it felt like a fever dream. How did this dish come to be? And why? And again, how? To track down this origin story, I went to the obvious place to start, the internet. I scoured Indian food blogs and articles and was eventually able to piece together a sort of lore that exists around the sizzler. And it starts in California. Sometime in the 1960s, Indian businessman Feroz Irani was on a trip in California, not exactly sure where, when he visited a Sizzler steakhouse. Remember those? Sizzler brings the choices that you've been looking for. At that time, Sizzler steakhouses were known for serving their steak on a sizzling platter that smoked up the whole room and made a big scene. Irani saw this and was entranced. He came back to Mumbai and went to work creating his version of a Sizzler. A few years later, in 1967, he opened up the Sizzler restaurant in a ritzy part of the city and sold allegedly the first Indian Sizzler. Grilled meat or vegetables on top of a bed of rice or pasta, or both, mixed in a special sauce and served on a steaming hot platter. According to legend, after Irani opened the Sizzler in Mumbai, his son Shahrukh eventually took over the business and opened another restaurant in India. From there, other families took the idea and ran with it. The two largest, most famous restaurant chains are Yoko Sizzlers and Kobe Sizzlers. Food blogger Indrajit Lahiri, based out of Kolkata, says part of what made the Sizzler so popular is its shosha, or showiness. Going to restaurants for a dine-out was not really very popular like what it is today. And my father used to take me to all these fancy joints. I'm sure it was ordered to for some other table and with that shusha and that visual appeal, I asked my father that, boss, what is this? And I want one of that. According to my husband Shaishav and our friend Janan, the dish really took off in the 1990s and early 2000s. Yoko and Kobe Sizzler chains had spread throughout India, and around that time, the Indian middle class was growing, and more people could afford to eat at restaurants. Sizzlers were still considered a luxury food at the time. Shaishav remembers eating his first Sizzler at a rich friend's birthday party. It's kind of not food that you have like if you're like normal middle class. It's like very upscale. And Yoko Sizzler is kind of like upscale. So he had a birthday party and they had like sectioned off a part of the restaurant. His like dad had this like DSLR camera and stuff. So so for that time, it's like he was like obviously like well off. (laughs) Eventually, the Sizzler gained international popularity as Indians immigrated to other countries and brought their food with them. I talked to Ryan Rizvi, who manages the Yoko Sizzler restaurants in the Middle East. He's based out of Dubai and has been tinkering with the Sizzler recipe to fit the local palate. Uh, We have a lot of local Arab customers that are coming in, you know, so we have to customize our taste according to them as well. Because if you have our original sauces in India, they would be a little more spicy than what we have here in Dubai. This alleged history explains why someone like me, who was born in the U.S., wouldn't know about Sizzlers, while Shayshiv and Janan grew up eating them. When my parents immigrated in the late 80s, they didn't know about the Sizzler because it wasn't popular enough. But in areas with a lot of recent Indian immigrants, like Edison, New Jersey, Detroit, Dallas, the San Francisco Bay Area, you can find Sizzler joints all over the place. 
I did reach out to Sizzler USA, the company behind the steakhouse chain, to see if they knew about any of this. Forbes Collins, the company's historian, said Sizzler was aware Indian restaurants were selling something called the Sizzler. But when I described the dish Firoz Irani created in the 1960s... The concoction. How did he build that concoction? I mean, he must have, he must have gotten the idea of the sizzling platter from us, right? But it wasn't just the platter Collins took issue with. He says Sizzler USA had a run-in with a restaurant in Florida. In Orlando, I saw a restaurant named the Sizzler Indian Cuisine. We weren't happy they were using our name, and we tried to stop. The marketing department got involved. I wasn't involved in it. But as far as Collins knows, nothing happened. Nothing. Nothing happened. I have no idea if it's so that we didn't do anything to them. Milan Sweets, back in Milpitas, that restaurant Jenna and Sheshev and I were at, doesn't mention the word Sizzlers in its name, but it's known Bay Area-wide for them. Here's Sanjay Patel, the owner, describing all their varieties. Chinese Sizzlers, um, Hawaiian Crispy Sizzlers, Manchurian Sizzlers, Kebab Sizzlers, which are made with paneer, uh, grated paneer kebabs. We have alutiki sizzlers, samosas. Sanjay's dad, Mukund, opened the restaurant in 1996 after moving here from England, where Sanjay was born. Milan Sweets originally served traditional Indian vegetarian food. But Sanjay, an award-winning chef, wanted to try something a little different. So I had a lot of excitement inside me. I've got this new country that is fresh to new ideas. Once he got to the U.S., he started working on the sizzler. And to sell the idea to an Indian-American audience, the Sizzler would have to adapt. Indian people love ketchup on everything that they eat. I kind of like studied, broke down what a ketchup is to try and create a sauce that has that tanginess that I can add some cream to so that it creates a sauce that's similar to a vodka sauce or at least a creamy marinara sauce. That's what he tosses his pasta in, which serves as the base layer for his samosa sizzler. Let's do the samosa sizzler and the um, Hawaiian crispy. And the verdict? Mmm. You like it? I so like sensory overload sometimes. <laughs> Approaching this thing is a bit of a task. I found taking a little bit of pasta and breaking up the samosa was the easiest way to go. It has a sort of like creamy yeah. sauce to it. It's like really good. Since having my first Sizzler, I find myself craving it on the regular. There's something poetic about it too, how the idea traveled from California to India, all the way across the world to the Middle East, to England and back to California. You taste familiar ingredients paired together in an unfamiliar way. And the result is unexpectedly harmonious. The whole is greater than the sum of its parts. If only we as humans could just do as the Sizzler does, complement each other's cultures and embrace the contradictions. For The California Report, I'm Aditi Bandlamudi, still eating that Sizzler. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program. Shaping the next generation of data-driven problem solvers. Learn more about the online Master of Data Science program from UC San Diego at omds.ucsd.edu.